to just bow in prayer once again. Only Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to be here today. Thank you for the opportunity to hear from Steve and to hear about the work of the Gideons. We thank you for John and Phil, our very own Gideons, and we pray for your blessing on their work of distributing your word. Father, now we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Uh, Father, may we base what we believe on what your word says, on the sound doctrines that are taught through your word. Help me, Father God, to clearly speak of what your word has to say on this topic of particular redemption this morning. We pray that you will bless your word to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, today we are going to continue the series on the doctrines of grace that I began three weeks ago. These are foundational truths that are taught throughout the Bible. These core doctrines give us great insight into who God is and what God has done to provide salvation for people like us, for sinners. These doctrines answer the most important question. How can a person be saved? They show us that the answer is that God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves. Sinners do not even contribute to their own salvation. These doctrines of grace show us that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith that God gives to us alone, faith in Christ alone, and all to the glory of God alone. There was a handout in your bulletin the last couple of weeks, but today I put it up on the screen, the doctrines of grace with their original names and their updated names. And I guess I didn't get the margins quite right. But you know what the first letters are, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, right? So the original names, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The updated names for those doctrines, which we believe are more understandable of what they mean, is radical depravity, unconditional election, particular redemption, efficacious grace, and persevering grace. So this morning, we are on the third of the five particular redemption. Two weeks ago, we looked at what the Bible has to say about our radical depravity. We learned that the sin of Adam was passed on or imputed to all of his descendants so that every human being born after Adam was born a sinner, spiritually dead and unable to please God and having no desire to do so. All of us were once in this dreadful, hopeless condition. And we would have remained that way unless God had caused us to be born again. 
Last week, we saw that God has graciously chosen from among the radically depraved a number of human beings whom he will save. And he did so according to his own sovereign will, not based on anything found in them. We call this doctrine unconditional election. We saw how the Bible teaches us that before the earth was even formed, God chose particular people who he would save throughout the history of mankind. Those whom the Father chose would then be given to the Son, who would at the proper time lay down his life for them to provide redemption for them. He would pay the penalty for their sin. And we call this the doctrine of particular redemption, which is where we find ourselves this morning. Particular redemption was originally referred to as limited atonement, or the L in the acronym TULIP. It is the third doctrine of grace, and it answers the question, for whom did Christ die? And what did his death accomplish? These are key questions. In order for us to understand the effect of Jesus' substitutionary death upon the cross and the extent of what that sacrifice accomplished. Now here, what the reformers taught and what the Arminians taught was not even close. The Arminians' belief was that Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty for all the sins of all the people of all time, thereby making salvation possible for all as long as they exercise their free will to choose to put their faith in Christ. So they taught that Christ saved no one in particular but made salvation available for all. The Reformers taught that the Bible tells us that Christ came down to pay the penalty for the sins of those chosen by the Father and given to the Son for salvation. That through his sinless life, he earned the righteousness that would be imputed or credited to all those chosen by the Father And that in his sacrificial atoning death, he actually paid the penalty for the sins of the elect, securing salvation for them by removing their sins completely forever. The Arminian view is that Christ died to make redemption and salvation possible for all, depending on the exercise of man's free will. The reformer's view was that Christ died to make redemption final and complete for all of those chosen who will then be saved according to God's will and grace. Christ did not die to simply make salvation possible. He died to actually secure salvation for all of those chosen by God to receive it. God does not leave this up to us, to fallen human beings who are spiritually dead and unable to choose God. If he left it up to us, 
none of us would be saved. It's just that simple. And so we need to look at what the Bible has to say, not what the Arminians taught or what the Reformers taught, but what does the Scripture say in regards to the divine intent of the atonement? What was God's intent in sending his son to suffer and die? Was Jesus' death an actual atonement? Did his death actually redeem anyone? Did his sacrifice make a true propitiation for our sins? Did Jesus' death actually reconcile any particular person to God? These are the questions that I want us to look at and answer. Let's look what the Bible tells us regarding why Jesus came and what his death accomplished. Starting with redemption. Redemption is a commercial term meaning to buy back. Ordinarily, we use this term only in reference to pawn shops where you can pawn something of value for cash and then redeem it back by paying the redemption price. I remember when I was uh, in the army, I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. We lived off post in Killeen, Texas. And about a week before payday, I was broke. I needed gas for my motorcycle, and I really needed something to eat. So I took my class ring that my parents had paid probably $100, $120 for, and I took it to the pawn shop, and I pawned it. They gave me $20, which filled my gas tank and gave me enough food for two or three days. This was a long time ago. I never redeemed it. It was $40 to redeem the ring. Okay? And I just kept putting it off, kept putting it off, kept putting it off, and eventually it was too late. In Jesus' day, this term for redemption was used in reference to slavery. By paying the redemption price, you could set a slave free. Most slavery in those days had something to do with debt. And that slave owed a debt to the master. If somebody came and paid off that debt, the slave would be set free. This is exactly what Jesus did. He redeemed us out of our slavery to sin, out of our slavery to Satan, out of our slavery to death. Jesus redeemed us. He paid the redemption price for us. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Romans 3.24. Paul writes that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're justified by God's grace and it's a gift. It's not something we do. It's not something we earn. It's a gift. And it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's where we talk about imputation. My sins were imputed to him, credited to him, and he paid the redemption price for those sins. 
In Ephesians 1, 7, we read this, that in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. When Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, he redeemed us. He paid what we owed. We had a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And then in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes that God has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These verses don't say that Jesus made redemption possible if. They say that Jesus accomplished our redemption. In order to set us free, Jesus had to pay the price due for our sins. And this price, let's not forget what the price is. It's the wrath of God. The holy wrath of God. That would have been poured out on us had not Jesus paid that price for us. The wrath of God was fully satisfied for our sins. Paid in full by Jesus' suffering and death on my behalf. So if the redemption price is paid, then the person who has been redeemed has to be set free. It's not dependent on any other thing. If the price is paid, the person has to be set free. Jesus also gave his life as a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a religious term, meaning to turn away or satisfy wrath. Specifically, here, the wrath of God, which was due for our sins. Our God is holy, righteous, and just. And of course, we are not. We are sinners. And we have sinned against God. Therefore, God's wrath is stored up against us in proportion to our sins. This wrath must be poured out. God's justice must be satisfied. So every sin must be paid for. Propitiation represents another person, in this case, Jesus, the Son of God, bearing that wrath in our place, paying the full penalty for our sins. Our sins were imputed or credited to Christ. He bore the wrath of God due for those sins. And listen to this. Our account would then be stamped, paid in full. So, This is what Jesus died for. That the penalty would be paid in full. And that's what the Bible tells us. Romans 3.25 tells us that Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, God the Father sent his son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins. 
thus satisfying the righteousness and justice of God for us. And he did this because in eternity past, he had set his love upon us and sent his son to fulfill all that was required to save those he loved. What God did was an expression of his love for us. What God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit did. It's an expression of his love for us. And when did he love us? Before the foundation of the world. In 1 John 4.10, we read this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I mean, John can't make it any more clear. And listen to me. You know this is true in your own life. There was a time, like so many of those we saw in the video from the Gideons, there was a time when I did not love God. I loved myself a lot. But I really could care less about God. I believed in a God, but I didn't love him. I really didn't care about him, to be quite honest. But God loved me, chose to reveal himself to me through the word of God, through the gospel, chose to set his love upon me. And let me tell you something. When our God sets himself to do something, he does it. It's not just a possibility. It's accomplished. You're getting ahead of me. It is finished. As we learned last Sunday, God chose those whom he would love and who his son would save in eternity past. And Jesus accomplished exactly what he was sent to accomplish for us. So if Jesus paid the penalty for a particular person's sins... That person is now free from the wrath of God. Amen? Amen? God cannot punish both Jesus and the sinner for the same sins. That would be unjust. And God is anything but unjust. Amen? So all for whom Jesus died must be set free from the curse of sin forever. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We are told not only that we have been redeemed by Christ and that he made propitiation for our sins, but also that we have been reconciled to God through him. Reconciliation means to make peace between two parties who are in conflict with each other. Before we came to know Christ as Savior and Lord, whether we realized it or not, we were in conflict with God. God created us to glorify himself. If we were not living to glorify him, we were in conflict with the very purpose for which we were created. Reconciliation means to make peace 
between those who are in conflict. Did the sacrifice of Jesus accomplish reconciliation for us? Or did it just make it possible? Well, why don't you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I want to read verses 6 through 11. I want to see what God's Word says about what Jesus' death accomplished in this regard. Did His death reconcile us to God? Romans 5, I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Note that while we were still weak is meaning before we were saved. While we were still under slavery to sin, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I know I'm using some big words this morning that aren't a part of our normal vocabulary, but they all come out of God's word. And they represent important principles. Important doctrines, important truths for us to understand. And here we see that the Apostle Paul sounds to me like we're being told that our reconciliation was already accomplished for us by Christ upon the cross. And listen to this, that it guaranteed that we be saved by his life. You notice that? Look at verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Sounds like that's completed. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. All of those who are reconciled to God by the sacrifice of Jesus are saved. There's no option. They're saved by the grace of God. And that is cause for rejoicing. Amen? That's cause for rejoicing. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes these words, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, again, that describes every single one of us, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Redemption accomplished and applied. Great book, by the way. So Paul tells us here that every person for whom Christ died was not only reconciled to God, but will also be presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. 
So all for whom Christ died will be presented to the Father as holy and blameless. What a blessing to be one of those chosen for salvation. Amen? One of those who are recipients of God's gracious gift of salvation. So what is the divine intent of the atonement? When we put these terms together, we see that Jesus did not come to merely make salvation possible, but to actually save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation possible. He came to appease God's wrath for each of his chosen people. He did not come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually reconciled us to God. Reconciled all of those whom the Father had given to him. James Boyce, in his marvelous book on the doctrines of grace, writes these words. Christ's work on the cross was not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers but a real and definite salvation for God's own chosen people. Amen. Amen. Which focuses on who are the objects of the atonement? For whom did Christ die? Again, the scripture is very, very clear in this. The apostle John, in his marvelous gospel, sets out to answer this very question and to make it very clear by recording Jesus' own words regarding who he came to die for. Now, let me tell you something. I believe that Jesus knew who he was to die for. Because as Pastor Don alluded to earlier, That was decided in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who they would set their love upon. Who they would choose for salvation. Who the Son would die to save. And Jesus describes who those individuals are over and over and over again. I want to just look at three of these passages. So turn to John chapter 6. I want you to see John 6, verses 37 through 39. Again, Jesus is speaking here. I realize most of us don't have red letter editions anymore, which is fine. But these are Jesus' own words. John 6, 37 to 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came to save those the Father gave him. And he reiterates that by saying, I'm not going to lose any of them. Now listen. It can't be up to them, or he would lose some of them. Jesus is going to accomplish what the Father gave him to do 
which is saving those given to him by the Father. And you say, well, wait a minute. God actually gave him individuals to save? That's what he says here. But let's turn to John chapter 10. See what he says there. Famous passage where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, right? John chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. His own what? Sheep, right? The sheep that he's going to lay his life down for. He knows them. You know what? He knows their names. You know what else? He knows the number of hairs on their head. He knows everything there is to know. He knows them. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Okay? Not just the Jews. Not just the disciples. Other sheep from every tongue, tribe, nation, on the earth, I must bring them in also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one, sh- one flock, one shepherd. Jesus knew who they were that God had given to him, and he was going to bring every one of them into the one flock, the one family of God. But if that's not convincing enough, turn to John chapter 17. Here we have Jesus' high priestly prayer. So this is the night before he goes to the cross. The night before he accomplishes the atonement, the redemption, the propitiation, the reconciliation. This is the night before. And he's praying not only for his current disciples, but he's praying for all of those whom he will save when he gives his life for them on the cross. And this is what Jesus says. John 17, starting in verse 6. Remember, he's praying to the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The Father had given him certain individuals, not the whole world, but certain individuals out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Look, listen to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus wasn't praying for everyone in the world. He's praying for those the Father has given him to be his. And then in verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, I'll tell you something. If my son asks me for something and it's in, within my power to grant it, I'm going to do everything I can do to give it to him. 
because I love him. Same thing for my daughter as well. Can't leave her out, right? My child. I believe that the father answered this prayer from his son. And that one day, everyone for whom Christ died will be with him in heaven, beholding his glory. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. It can't come soon enough for me. I mean, I love you guys. But man, if I can go be with him tomorrow, I'm ready. I'm ready. There are so many other passages that make it very clear that Jesus died to save and sanctify only those who had been chosen by the Father for salvation. These then were given to the Son so that he could die to reconcile them to God and so that the Spirit of God would then cause them to be born again and live for Christ and one day be with him in heaven and behold his glory forever. Praise be to God. Now, does this change our approach to evangelism, to sharing the gospel with all men and women, boys and girls? The answer is no. Not in any way, shape, or form. But pastor, you just said Jesus didn't die for everyone. That's correct. But guess what? I don't know who was chosen and who was not chosen, nor am I to know. I am to take the gospel to all mankind, every man, woman, boy, and girl, every person that God puts in my path. This actually empowers our evangelism. As I said last week, we know that God has chosen some for salvation, amen? And that they will receive the gospel and be saved. And so that's our great hope. That that next person we hand the scriptures to. Or that next person we give a tract to. Or that next person we testify to about Christ. Will be one of those chosen for salvation. And they'll be saved. Only God knows who he has chosen. So we present the gospel to all knowing that those chosen for salvation will be saved through the power of the gospel and the power of God's spirit causing them to be born again. We will hear more about that topic in my next sermon on God's effective saving grace. So I want to close by looking at three of the benefits of the doctrine of particular redemption. Three of the benefits. First, it exalts the completed work of Christ. It exalts the completed work of Christ in his obedience, his suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It tells us that when Jesus said, it is finished, it actually was. The sins of all of those chosen by the Father had been imputed to his Son. And he had suffered the wrath of God that was due for those sins. For my sins. For your sins. 
if you've trusted in him. He did not simply make salvation possible. He saved us. James Boyce, again, writes these words. We preach that Jesus died for his people, actually dying in their place. He redeemed them from the terrible bondage of their sin. He propitiated the wrath of God the Father on their behalf. He reconciled them to God. He is our all-sufficient Savior. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Amen. Second benefit, it gives us absolute assurance of salvation because Jesus has already done everything that is required to reconcile us to God. And therefore, it guarantees our eternal fellowship with God. The Father has chosen us, the Son secured our salvation, and the Holy Spirit of God causes us to be born again and gives us the gift of saving faith so that we believe and trust in Christ. All of this is done by God. It is not dependent upon us. Therefore, we can't mess it up. We can't lose it. We are secure. We're secure in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it results in greater glory to God. The doctrines of grace, which are derived from the teachings of Scripture, together show us that salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. God the Father chose a people. God the Son died for them. And God the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing those who were dead alive, bringing them to faith and repentance, causing them to willingly obey the gospel call and to run into the arms of our Lord. The entire process, election, redemption, and regeneration is the work of God, and it is by grace alone. And therefore, all glory goes to Him. We are saved by God's grace, and all glory is due to Him and to Him alone. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? Let's pray. 